Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. I am your host, Scott Gardner, and joining me for this episode is Mr. Thomas DJ of the Better in the Dark podcast and DJ's Comics Cavalcade, which are both accessible through the earth-2.net website. Welcome to the show, Thomas. Thank you very much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, it's great to have you here. I am going to go ahead and go first tonight. And the first one I have, or and the only one I have, okay, is uh, this is going back to October two thousand three. Now I do not speak Spanish, nor do am I fluent reading Spanish or anything. And there is Spanish in both the title and the uh, the story title of this comic I'm about to review. So. Spanish listeners, Spanish-speaking uh, listeners, please forgive me when I butcher this. I have no idea how to pronounce this, but this is Cinnamon L. I'm assuming it's Ciclo because the English translation is the cycle, so I'm assuming it's L. Ciclo. But it's Cinnamon L. Ciclo is the name of it. It's number one by DC Comics. Really nice cover by Howard Chaikin. Oh, boy. And, oh, yeah, I really like this. I'm, before he became... Fuck, fuck, crazy. <laughs> I absolutely adored Howard Aiken. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like him a lot. This actually reminds me an awful lot of mm-hmm. one of his shadow covers. If you remember that four-issue oh, prestige yeah. mini he did back in the 80s, mm-hmm. it's very reminiscent. It's a, a really good-looking uh, redhead woman, and she's got her two six-guns, and she's got like this big... Uh, almost like a trench coat type of thing. And she's dressed up kind of like a cowgirl and she's like diving to the side and firing off her guns. But just the way she's holding herself and the guns are going off and the look on her face, it really reminds me a lot of, of one of his uh, things from his shadow series. And you know, Chicken is one of those artists, much like Alex Toth, who was built for that kind of pulp adventure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I wish he had done the interiors on this too. It's it's kind of a shame that he did not. But uh, the uh, the writer on this is Jen Van Meter, penciler is Francisco Peronzini. I hope I'm not butchering that too bad. And the inker is Robert Campanella. Original cover price on this is two dollars and fifty cents. And I'm not sure exactly what I paid for it, but I know I got it as part of a massive collection that I bought. So I'm thinking this was probably you know, you break it down to the per cost, you know, per issue cost. I'm thinking like ten or twenty cents, something like that. And the story is entitled, again, this is Spanish, so forgive me if I butcher it. I believe it's in Inicio, which I'm led to believe means home in English. And we start off on this uh, this bar that is somewhere south of the U.S. border. It doesn't specify exactly where it is, and everyone is speaking Spanish. And these two lowlifes go into a bar, and they are there for a drug deal. And right away we see the woman that uh, I'm assuming is Cinnamon. Uh, she's not really named in the issue, but uh, I'll get back to that in a, in a minute. The guys go through the bar, and they go out back, and they meet up with this guy who doesn't really speak Spanish, and so they kind of stumble through a conversation. He's there to buy drugs from them, but when they see how much money this guy is loaded with, they decide to just go ahead and take his wallet and, and basically take all his money. Cinnamon comes through the uh, the batwing doors in the back of the bar and basically, like, you know, 
lay down your guns, you know, give up, surrender. She's she's trying to help out the guy that's being right. held up. A gunfight breaks out, and she actually takes a slug right in the shoulder and doesn't even flinch. The guys are kind of freaked out by this, and they run off. They drop the wallet, and uh, Cinnamon says that, you know, she basically berates the guy that was being held up for being such an idiot. You know, he's a, uh, a senator's son, and she calls some friend of hers to basically take him back to his hotel room and tells him to, you know, to lay low. Later on, after she's patched up her shoulder and everything, she's talking to the bartender after hours, and everybody's cleared out. He says that, you know, shortly the uh, the season that they're in is going to end and all the Americans will be leaving, and he's not going to be able to pay her anymore and, and is wondering what she's going to do. And she says, well, at this point, I'm just going to wander on. So we see her sometime later. She catches a ride with uh, a fella who's headed north, and he's loading up the back of his pickup truck with boxes that say books, but, you know, it's it's kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge situation it's where we know that... books, it's yeah, yeah, books. It's, yeah, yeah, definitely. We know that he's hauling something, and he hires her on as a, as a ride-along for, you know, for $300. She has this flashback to when her father was killed in a bank holdup gone wrong. And we see her, you know, initially she's beside her father's body as he's dying and everything, and she's a small girl. And then we see her presumably a couple years later where she's more like a like a teen or a preteen, and she's learning to shoot. And she we see her shooting at a wanted poster. And then she comes back from her flashback, and we see the truck that she's in driving along, and all of a sudden, it comes into an ambush where all these guys are waiting with with uh, guns, and they open up on the truck. And she does her job. She takes the guys out. She's shooting them and, and capping them left and right. And she defends the the truck and everything. And it comes down to where there's only two guys of these ambushers left, and they beg her not to kill them, to let them just you know collect their their dead and wounded, and and they'll leave her alone and leave them in peace, and she lets them go. And the guy that she was doing the ride-along with is a little bit upset about that, you know, and asks why, you know, why did she let them leave? Why didn't she just kill them? And and uh, she said that, you know, well, you need them alive to move the car that's blocking the road, basically. So, you know, we get the idea that she's kind of a, a tough character, or at least that's how they're trying to play her up. So when they finally get to where they're going... She bows out and says, you know, she's got to go her own way. She's not going to ride on any further. And she takes one of the boxes of quote-unquote books with her. She stops into this little diner type of thing, and there she meets up with somebody that it's kind of hinted very strongly that, that she and this guy have had some sort of shared history in the past. And she leaves the uh, what turns out to be uh, in the box is a bunch of tequila. She leaves it with him, and he... He pays her for it, basically. And he tells her that someone came through looking for her a while ago, and he describes the girl to her that was looking for her. And she thanks him for the information. She gets on the bus, and she starts traveling. And as she's traveling and she stops into like these sleazy diners and stuff, she's asking everybody she runs into about this person that was looking for her. She has another flashback to when her father was killed and she's woken up by the bus driver who you know, tells her that she was sleeping like the dead 
she gets off the bus and she goes into whatever town that they've stopped at. She does some more asking around and she ends up tracking down an old doctor friend of hers that does a better patch up job on her arm and where she got shot than she herself had done. And while she's talking to this doctor friend of hers, the doctor clues her in on where this woman that was looking for her was from. So now she has a destination. She knows where to go. We get another flashback to where she shows up at a home and she asks for a guy, Jason Samuels. And the guy says, you know, who are you? What do you want with Samuels? And she shows him a wanted poster. And the guy has a really shocked expression on his face and he looks at his little girl who's playing in the living room near him, tells her to go be with her mama, and he tells her that he loves her. And he turns to Cinnamon and says, can we do this outside? And they go outside, and they basically have a duel in which Cinnamon shoots him dead. And we're led to believe that you know the reason she's done this is he was one of the, the bank robbers, one of the gunmen that killed her father. But unbeknownst to her the guy that she's just killed, his little girl, has witnessed the whole thing. And we cut back to the present, and this little girl is now grown up, and she's older. She looks like she's probably a teenager, maybe in her early 20s, thereabouts. And she's holding the gun on a couple of scumbags that are roughing up this prostitute in a back alley. And she's trying to get them to let her go and leave the girl alone, and they don't want to. And a gunfight breaks out in which she ends up killing one of the two guys, and the other guy runs off, and she basically rescues this this prostitute and tells you know hollers at the other guy to leave her alone from now on. Now, on the last page, we see Cinnamon again. You know, she's in another town thanking somebody for the lift and trying to uh, finagle her way to get to Los Angeles. And the guy, you know, directs her to some place that she can go to to possibly catch another ride and, and get there. And he asks her in, in the very end of the book, you know, what's a nice girl like you want with going to L.A.? You know, the place is a cesspit. And she says, somebody there owes me something. And that was how the book ended. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about this one. It wasn't bad. It was okay. It was just a little slow. And I'm a little bit puzzled as to why the update treatment on this. Because right. Cinnamon, you know, I'm I'm not horribly versed in Western characters, but she is a character I'm familiar with from DC's history. You know, DC right. did have an old West character called Cinnamon with basically the same backstory. I believe that her father was, uh, I think he was a sheriff or like a town right. deputy or something like that. And he was killed by, I don't know, bank robbers or scumbags, some sort of desperados. Right. And so she became basically an old West vigilante. But she was unique because she was a woman. You know, right. she was kind of like the almost like a Lone Ranger character of the old West. But she was right. this really hot redhead that went around trying to find and bring justice to these guys that had killed her husband or excuse me, her father when she was a little girl. So this seems like basically the same story, only it's more or less modern day. Yeah, I was very confused listening to the uh, summary mm-hmm. about whether this was supposed to be in the old West or not. No, no, it's all it's all appears to be modern day. You know, it doesn't it doesn't ever give a year or anything like that, but it, it feels like it's you know definitely right. you know contemporary. 
let's say it, it, it could be, you know, it could be the seventies. It could be, you know, right up to the moment. It doesn't really give a, a year, but just by the look of it, it, it feels like it's supposed to be, you know, in our time. Now, was this a one shot or was this the beginning of a mini series? This is the beginning of a mini. This was a, okay. let's see here, one of five. So this was a five issue mini. Um, this is the first I've read of it. I, I haven't read beyond this point. Um, okay. I, I think I do have the entire mini, and I, I'll probably read it at some point. But, you know, like I say, it wasn't bad, but it didn't exactly suck me right in either. And this is one of those books that I would recommend, you know, if you were going to check it out, definitely check it out on the cheap. I think the original cover price of it of two fifty was a little bit pricey for this. I, I just didn't feel like it was exciting enough. Mm-hmm. For I mean, that it looked like it, it was raising more questions than it wanted to answer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I I find it very weird that, okay, you know, she's on the trail of the guys that killed her father, yet in that scenario of killing one of the guys that killed her father, she basically creates another version of herself that's now going to come after her. That, I don't know, that could be interesting in another character's scenario, but with this instance, it just added to the convolution of the story really it didn't it didn't add anything but something like that say do the same thing with like batman for example you know like like batman catches joe chill and then inspires like joe chill's child to later grow up and come after him kind of thing that could be really cool but or if, the, let's say, this this new Simmons character, much like what uh, Chuck Dixon did with the Trigger Twins, mm-hmm. was incorporated into another existing hero's uh, background as part of as part of the story. Right. So, like I say, not a not a bad book. It was just uh, it was a little eh. You know, it it didn't have enough to to really thoroughly suck me. And I really wish that this had been the original cinnamon in her, in her right. original series or i mean her original setting rather because i i think that only ever appeared as i think it was just backup features somewhere yeah and uh i think also she wasn't she also uh brought into hawkman's backstory yes yeah she ended up as part uh, of the nighthawk right yeah nighthawk and uh and cinnamon ended up being lovers at one point and ended up being retconned to be prior incarnations of Carter and Shiera Hall. So, you know, they, they were had the whole faded lovers thing go on and all that. And I thought that was really neat. Although it kinda hit my continuity fanboy button because I like the fact that Nighthawk died in the Crisis on Infinite right. Earths. And with this retconning story that happened in Hawkman, that, that kind of undid that to where that's not how he died anymore. But it was such a good story that I could kind of overlook it. Right. So what do you bring to the uh, to the table tonight? I, I find it interesting that we've got a lot of parallels in this episode because we started out at the top of the hour talking about Howard Chaykin, what a great pulp artist he was. And we talked about a character in your review that was used as a reincarnation of another character. And what I have here is dates back to 1975, February. Uh, from Atlas, depending upon what part of the country you were in, it was either Atlas Comics or Seaboard Comics. Oh, yeah. The Scorpion, number one. <laughs> 
written and drawn by one Mr. Howard Chaikin. Uh, the name of the story is The Death's Gemini Commission, uh, lettered by N. Kowecki and edited, edited by Jeff Rovin. And this cover is pure Chaikin. It's got your hero who is this, like, dark-haired, like most of Chaikin's heroes are, dark-haired, chisel-featured, handsome guy wearing a brown vest and a black, looks like black undershirt with a pair of jeans, boots, two guns, ready to draw. Has right behind him is some blonde, is some uh, red-headed chicky uh, tied up to an uh, airplane engine. How can you not like that? <laughs> How can you not? And this is this is a, a this book, even though it's very obscure. I don't think I think you and I may be two of the only people who ever remember this book. Is very significant. This we'll go on to later. Uh, it opens with an explanation of who the scorpion is. The scorpion is Mora Frog, who has been around for over a hundred years. And we see little snapshots of his previous lives, where he was a uh, a operative, basically a spy for the Union Army during the Civil War. Uh, how he was a special envoy to President Roosevelt. How he fought against uh, Pershing in um, as a flying ace. And now he's here in, in 1930s New York, operating as the Scorpion. And then we get that wonderful, this wonderful, amazing two-page spread introduced to the character as a he's out on the town and a plane's flying overhead and crashes killing the two people inside the plane he goes to investigate and he is approached by the man who owns the plane Roger Boyle who has explained that he's been his uh, company his courier company has been targeted for some mysterious reason and even the milk runs that he's been doing have been sabotaged. And he asks the Scorpion to investigate. Now, what's been killing these planes, you may ask? We learn in the next, on the next page, on a private island in upstate New York. <laughs> <laughs> this is pure pulp. Chicken Egg makes no bones about this. This is a pure A.D. pulp story. So there's this private island, and there's the evil, the evil man named Garrow Kalazakdian. And he is employing these two twins who stole this sonic device that shoots the planes down, before, of course, throwing the scientist who created it out the window. <laughs> so Scorpion is investigating, goes to the Boyle's uh, business. He, decide, he sends his assistant... Uh, Ruby, who is the, the Zoftig redhead on the cover, and is his secretary, and also it's kind of implied they've been sleeping together, because of course it wouldn't be a Chaken, uh, Chaken book without kinky sex, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so she goes out to the docks to see what she can find out, and he goes instead of one of Boyle's aviators to uh, lure out the people who are sabotaging the planes. And sure enough, the twins do go after him, but he dogfights them, and the twins aren't ready for the dogfight, so they disengage right quick and manage to get away with their life. Meanwhile, Ruby is on the waterfront, dolled up as, as only a Howard Chaikin female can be dolled up, and she is approached by people who are going, like, why are you asking so many questions? You know, boom, gone, why are you asking so many questions, doll? 
<laughs> you see what I mean? <laughs> luckily, this scorpion is there, and he beats the crap out of these guys and learns about Caladasian. And they decide, they go to report to Boyle, and they go home. They're going to have a little uh, little relaxation before they're going to put the uh, pain on Caladasian. However, the twins show up at Caladasian's office and decide, you know, since the scorpion has shown up, we've decided to cut you out of this. We're going to kill him ourselves and take the device with us. So he, they kill Caladasian, adding at the end of it, what a jerk, and head off to set a trap for the scorpion. They lure Ruby out into the open and kidnap her, and the scorpion gives chase on his motorcycle. Because, of course, it's the whole thing. Guy's got to have a motorcycle and a car and a plane, everything, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so there's a big there's a, there's a chase scene through the streets of New York that leads them back to Caladesian's airfield. And here's where we get the scene, basically the origin of the scene on the cover, because the scorpion comes in and they've tied uh, Ruby to this experimental airplane engine and are threatening to, if he doesn't drop his guns and let himself get plugged, they're going to turn on the engine and little Ruby's going to be toast. But the, scor- the scorpion basically goes, hey, how about we do this one, rather than, than, sh- rather than shoot me, why don't you just beat this out of me? Why don't you beat me? And they're like, oh, no, great, I like getting messy, right? And the twins <laughs> come after him, and the scorpion takes off his vest and wraps it around his hand, because we learn in this in this this scene that the reason the scorpion wears the vest is that it's, even though it's soft leather, it's lined with chain mail. And he beats, he just whacks them upside the head, knocks one of them, knocks one of them silly. The other one runs to go and escape, because he realizes everything's gone to get runs into the plane, is about ready to take his uh, take leave. He's flying away. The other, the, His brother is running after him saying, hey, wait, wait, you, know, you got to pick me up. you got to pick me up. Oh, no, he doesn't have to pick you up because he just flies right through him and turns him into a little bit of red mush. And the scorpion takes chase once again on his motorcycle, jumps over a car to get to the plane high enough to, while the plane is taking off to shoot the, guy, the pilot, killing him, plane crashes, Motorcycle crashes. Boyle's, Boyle's um, business is saved. He asks Boyle to let him borrow his car. And him and Ruby go home for what is assumed to be more dirty Howard Chaykin sex. <laughs> One can hope, anyway. But, yes. I love the And the thing is, I'm one of these people that, I will admit, a lot of the Atlas, and Atlas was, was a company built out of the fact that Martin Goodman felt hurt because he was uh, bought out of Marvel Comics and decided, well, I'm going to do better than you guys. Set up shop across the street from Marvel and just started making comics. And there's a lot of crap in that in that pile. Oh, but yeah. there are some real... Ge- including a curious run of cannibal superheroes. <laughs> three, separate super- three separate superhero titles. Morlock 2001, The Brute, and The Tarantula. <laughs> And it made me leave, let me believe that there was some weird editor running around the Atlas offices just grabbing scripts at random and just running at the bottom. And he eats people. <laughs> now, but, I, I, I understand that those, uh, those books have become highly sought after. I don't know that they're particularly valuable or anything, but I guess they are kind of rare. 
And so it's rare for people to actually have a collection of everything that, that Atlas published, even though they weren't around very long and didn't really publish all that many books. They lasted a grand total of six months. Wow. Um, the most a title ever reached was number six. That was The Destructor, which was the Archie Goodwin, Steve Ditko take on Spider-Man. Right. How many issues and of The Scorpion was there? Was there just the, the one? The Scorpion lasted two good issues. Okay. And one, because they had two issues that Howard Chaykin did. This one, and there, the second one was this kind of voodoo-themed mystery. But the third issue was the month that Martin Goodman got really scared and had all the concepts change. So all of a sudden, Scorpion was a, super, a superhero in a really awful blue and red outfit, who was the son of Morrow Frost, and threw little Scorpion, like gold-shaped Scorpion shurikens at people, and his villain was the Golden Fuhrer. <laughs> However, this wasn't the end of the Morrow Frost character, because, as Howard Jacob will tell you in interviews... He liked this guy so much that when they were, he was told that Morrow Frost services would no longer be needed, he packed up his stuff for the third issue, walked across the street to Marvel, went over to Archie Goodwin, who was editing uh, the black and white books at the time, and said, Archie, would you like the Scorpion? And Archie said, yes. He said, but we're going to need to call him something other than the Scorpion. And that's how Dominic Fortune came to me. I was just wondering that, yeah, because when you started describing him, he sounded an awful lot to me like Dominic Fortune. So, oh, that's funny. Well, this is the period in in time where, which I refer to as the Howard Taken Eternal Champion period, Mm -hmm. where he kind of was pretty much saying to people that every one of his heroes was the same person, just different aspects from a time and space. Right. And this is something that he contends well into American flag to, through Times Squared. But this this is just... First of all, like I said, I mean, you could tell how fast-paced this thing is going. This thing does not stop for breath. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot and of meat to it. it's just pure... For, for somebody like me who loves that kind of old-style pulp fiction, like Doc Savage and The Shadow... I mean, you can see why Jacob did not want to give give up this character, because this is pure, 100% adrenaline pulp fiction, and it's just loads and loads of fun, and he had loads and loads of fun with Dominic Fortune as well, once he took it over there, before, of course, once again, he got bug fuck crazy and decided to have transvestites and stuff in the most recent one. See, I, w- I was so nervous when you started to introduce this book, I really thought that you were going to whip out... Uh... Uh, black kiss on and I was like, too, yeah. oh no. No. no, my friend. I read that book, I was probably, I was a tender age. I was probably, I don't know, yes. 16, I 17, and it blew my mind. I was like, what the hell am I reading? I hope my mother doesn't find this sitting around in my room. That was the beginning of... Howard's slide into, as we've referred to it more than once, which was bugfuck craziness. Right. Then you got stuff after that, like the, like the, what was, what was it called? The thing where he did everything with the science fiction characters for DC. Mm. Um, oh, I don't. Twilight. It was called Twilight. Oh, okay. I'm... That one doesn't ring a bell with me. That was, I mean, it's a well-written book, but it's got some really deviant crap going on. <laughs> Um, but this stuff, this is, this is a great, and this is, like I said, this is basically, I think, the, the, the germ, the, the seed that will grow into the beauty that is American flag. 
you can see a lot of his themes for American Flag beginning to develop in the, the Moral Frost slash Dominic Fortune accents. Now, has this ever been reprinted that you're aware of? The best of my knowledge, no. This is the most expensive of the... I own a lot of Atlas comics because I just am fascinated by this bizarrity. Um, this is the most expensive one I ever had to buy. It cost me $3. <laughs> most of the others I found in 25... I used to live in Flushing, Queens, and there was a comic shop around the corner. It was George Perez's favorite comic shop uh, before he moved to Florida. And there was there were 25-cent bins with stuff with almost the entire Atlas run. I mean, they were dog-eared, but I was able to get easily like 80% of what remained of Atlas that I did not have. Oh, cool. In do, that you, 20... do you have one called uh, Demon Hunter? Yes, of course. That's... The Rick Butler thing that, that at the end of that issue, the character gets in a suitcase, gets on an airplane, and gets off an airplane in an issue of Marvel Premier. That's right. <laughs> now, what was that character that he became in Marvel? I, I can never remember that character's Devil name. Devil Slayer. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Eric Payne, the Devil Slayer. That's right. Yeah, that's that's the only issue of of uh, Atlas I have anymore. I had a lot of them for some mm-hmm. reason when I was a kid. I had a ton of them because. You know, like you say, they were only around a few months, but they must have just super overprinted or something because well, I remember them big brown. You said you lived in Rochester? Well, I, I lived in upstate as a kid. I lived up yeah. in uh, water, you know, the Syracuse Watertown area. And, uh, yeah, they were prevalent like crazy up there. Yeah, because you had particularly, I mean, the, I really believe that we were probably, the New York area was probably the only place that got – uh, both Atlas and Carlton with any regularity. Right, yeah, we, we had a lot of Charlton comics, too, yeah. The, the place that I bought comics for most of my childhood, um, the spinner rack had Marvel and Charlton, but no mm-hmm. DC. We had to go all the way to another city to get DC comics. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's so odd. But, you know, the only one I kept was that Demon Hunter, and and I didn't, you know, of course I was a kid. I didn't really think about it consciously then, but I realize now that the reason I kept it was because it was Rich Buckler art, and I'm a big Buckler fan. Right. But, well, I mean, one of the great things about Atlas is it did give a lot of creators at that time chances to do stuff they would not have gotten to do under DC or Marvel. Right. Some of the stuff, like Ernie Chan had a... Um, Larry Hama had, and Larry Chan had these two uh, barbarian books. Uh, Ernest was called Iron Jaw. Right. And uh, Larry's was called Wolf the Barbarian, with a U instead of an O. Right. And Iron Jaw was really whacked out because it turns out it was a post apocalyptic barbarian story. <laughs> and uh, Iron Jaw worshipped a washing machine. <laughs> um, and, like, the other one that I just think is the. Um, and he, he let Michael Flasher go insane with some of this, because he was the one that created Morlock 2001, which was like this ultimate mashup of uh, Fahrenheit 411 and 1984 and um, every other like 60 science fiction movie ever made, <laughs> featuring... A guy who turned into, when he was under stress, into a giant cannibalistic ambulatory tree. 
Oh, awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Like, I've always joked that if I ever had a tremendous amount of money and uh, an inclination to to open a comic comic book uh, company, I would track down whoever owns the rights to these characters. I'm actually surprised that more of them haven't, you know, made some sort of resurgence or what, some sort of reappearance just because of the talent right. that that birthed them, you know? Well, beside the Scorpion, you, I mean, you had some really, like, you had the Grim Ghost, who was a Ernie Cullen character, mm-hmm. who was uh, a variation, basically kind of like a, the Ghost Rider, if the Ghost Rider was Errol Flynn. <laughs> um... You had, I mentioned it more like 2001, you had The Destructor, which is actually a pretty solid, if really bloodthirsty, superhero book uh, created by Steve Ditko. You had The Brute, who was a thought-out blue-skinned caveman created by Mark, Mike Sikorsky, of all people. Huh. And yes, he ate people. <laughs> so... A lot of just weird and oh, and of course you had like um, Patrick Broderick of all people, and Archie Goodwin created a science fiction strip called Planet of the Vampires. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Isn't that yeah. uh, isn't that one of the books that uh, it's it shown in uh, the Lost Boys? Probably is that movie. The Lost features that really. Uh, it, the first couple of issues feature some really choice Neil Adams covers. I'm pretty sure that's one of the books that gets tossed to uh, that kid in, in The Lost Boys when the, the kids that work the comic shop are trying to tell him that there's vampires right. in that town and they toss some comics at him and I think that Planet of the Vampires is one of the comics they throw at him. Yeah. So, yeah. But unfortunately, The Scorpion has not been reprinted. I guess it might be a rights issue or something. That, yeah, that was going to be my last question. Is I wonder if this stuff would be considered public domain today where anybody could pick it up or if the rights are actually tied up out there somewhere where somebody actually owns all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I suspect that Martin, Good, well, Martin Goodman's family at this point, because the man has passed on, I suspect that they probably still own the rights, the rights to it. Uh, although if it was public domain, let me tell you something, I'd be starting to write Scorpion stuff right now. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I wonder if, uh, if you know, that'd be interesting to find out. And, and mm-hmm. if any of that stuff was actually public domain and, you know, interesting enough to where it could be dusted off, I'd, I'd kind of like to see something. Although like I have that. to wonder what would happen if we found it, we found out the rights and was able to give it back to Howard Chick and what he would do with it. Ah. Probably put more boobs in it, but... I think that's a perfect place to end right there, too. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me right back here next week when who knows what mystery guest host will be popping by. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, and criticisms for the show via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the 2TrueFreaks section of thecomicforums.com. We are now accepting requests for guest host spots on the show, so if you'd like to join me in an episode, let me know. Also, please be sure to check out the home website for Back to the Bins at www.2truefreaks.libsyn.com. 
Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you can find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to drop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and I'll see you next week.